Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here, back with another CHP episode, number 182. Is that longevity or what? I was at one of my many, uh, I don't know what you call them, one of these uh, LA, China events that I always get invited to. I was chatting up this uh, fellow American guy who, well, let's just say spoke Mandarin, had a China-related career, did an expat tour of China. Somehow the Nanjing Massacre came up in our conversation and... Well, to make a long story short, this person who I thought would certainly be familiar with such a well-known historic event, he had no clue. He said he, of course, heard of the rape of Nanking, but he thought it had something to do with the Taiping Rebellion. Well, Nanjing did get to witness a massacre at the conclusion of the Taiping Rebellion in 1864 when Zheng Guofan's forces took the capital. I heard it was quite a bloody time. About 100,000 lives lost. But I don't think that's what this person was talking about. So right then and there, I thought to myself, if I found one person who didn't have the lowdown on the rape of Nanking or Nanking Massacre, there's got to be 100 more like him. And also, it's 80 years ago this December 2017 that this happened. And also, over the past seven years, since the inaugural CHP episode in June 2010, this topic's been requested I don't know how many times. So, here it is. Let's look at not only this specific event, but also review, once again, what led up to it, what happened during the worst weeks of the massacre, and what was the aftermath. I'll give you a spoiler alert. No happy ending in this story. For many survivors and their progeny who were directly and indirectly affected by what happened in Nanjing beginning in December 1937... Even eight decades later, there's still a whole Chernobyl wasteland of lingering enmity. Way back when I came out with that episode CHP 56 on the history of China and Japan, 1895 to 1945, I mentioned about this official, Zhao Qi Zheng, who had once written, what a shame it was that two millennia of friendship between the two countries, China and Japan, had been swept aside due to these 50 years of confrontation. 59 AD, or CE, whatever your preference is, Japan and China shook hands for the first time. And pretty much until the Meiji Restoration, these two great nations got along. Yeah, Kublai Khan tried to annihilate Japan a couple times, but he failed to achieve his objective. And Japanese pirates were a constant thorn in the side of the China coast, but because of so much shared culture, overall you could say the good outweighed the bad for the first couple thousand years. What happened? In these two episodes, I'll try and explain it. I relied on five main sources in the course of my reading. If you never heard the name Iris Zhang before, she was quite important to bringing awareness to the Nanjing Massacre. Zhang Chunru was her Chinese name. Her 1997 book, The Rape of Nanking, The Forgotten Holocaust of World War II, did so much to publicize the history and bring some understanding to many who wondered why so much friction still existed between China and Japan. Well, the Nanjing Massacre is just part of a bigger picture, but that event has come to symbolize the whole period in history that lasted from 1937 to 1945. 
Iris Zhang's parents got caught up in these events. They had to flee for their lives from Nanjing, late 1937. So Iris Zhang grew up knowing all about what happened. And when she decided to bring this story to a more widespread audience, she chanced upon the diaries of John Rabe. And we'll get to Mr. Rabe in the next episode. Another source I used was The Good German of Nanking, The Diaries of John Rabe, edited by Erwin Wickert and translated by John E. Woods. It came out in 1998 in the States and in 1997 in Germany. I also had Jay Taylor's The Generalissimo, John Kaishak and the Struggle for Modern China, and Rana Mitter's Forgotten Ally. I also read through work by Asahi Shimbun journalist uh, Honda Katsuichi. He went to China during the 70s and 80s to interview survivors of the Nanjing Massacre and wrote quite extensively on the subject. There were also many online resources I used, but those were the main five. Although this happened 80 years ago, as I said, it's still fresh in the minds for many. And plenty believe, let's bury this and move on. Stop talking about it. My Japanese listeners saw this topic and perhaps wondered, why do you got to bring this up? It's a controversial subject for many, especially those with a vested interest in the outcome of the history. I'm not taking sides here, just trying to present what happened. The road to 1937 began, perhaps, in 1868 with the Meiji Restoration. This was the upshot of Commodore Perry's shock visit to Edo in July 1853 and the subsequent convention of Kanagawa that followed in March 1854. The Western powers had already been milking China for 10 years, so when Perry sailed into Edo Harbor with 10 ships and 1,600 men demanding trade rights, Japan at first didn't know how to respond to such an overwhelming show of power and audacity. Of course, this was already old hat for the Western powers. Once the Yanks extracted their treaty, in rushed the British, the French, Russians, and Germans to sign similar deals. So basically, Japan in the 1850s was facing a similar situation that the Chinese had already become all too familiar with in the 1840s. So with Japan's perfect little uncontaminated world at an end, they rushed headlong out of the bubble and studied everything there was to learn about the West. Science, technology, military and political science. Japanese students left home to go study at all the most prominent learning institutions, Europe and America. Then they came back to Japan, and everything they learned from the barbarian was digested and would, at a time of Japan's choosing, be used to expel the barbarian. Yeah, that became the... The yes we can and uh, and make America great again slogan of the day. Revere the emperor, expel the barbarian. Son no joi in Japanese, zun wang rang yi in Mandarin. Japan exploded out of the starting blocks. It only took them 42 years from the moment Commodore Perry sailed into Edo Harbor to the point where Li Hongzhang had to hang China's head in shame and sign the Treaty of Shimonoseki. That was fast, much to China's everlasting regret. As Japan was strutting onto the world stage and acting like the man, they were a nation down on their luck and referred to in the late 19th century press as the sick man of Asia. Japan, during the first decade of the 20th century, was now 
and equal to the Western powers. At least it seemed that way. In 1905, they knocked out Tsarist Russia. That was a pretty big country. That sure ushered in a golden time in Japan. Can you imagine the national pride? Not only did they show the world they could beat China and Russia, the economy in Japan was booming. And their manufacturers were in demand the world over. And Japanese companies had been raking in the profits leading up to and during World War I. But after the Great War ended, Japan's economic fortunes took quite a hit. Then four years later, on September 1st, 1923, came the Great Kanto Earthquake. 7.9 in magnitude, centered just south of Tokyo. 140,000 people perished, and this just added to Japan's economic and social misery. The nation's capital was flattened a harbinger of what they were going to do to China's capital 14 years later. When the Great Depression snuffed out the last of the Roaring Twenties, Japan will feel it as hard as everyone. And when times are tough, that's when the bare-knuckle politics takes over. The technocrats and centrists who ran the levers of power in Tokyo were fighting a losing battle against the militarists, backed by ultra-conservatives and right-wing factions and the silent majority who didn't exhibit open support, but didn't do anything to change the tide either. It's slightly more complicated than that. To learn more about this and about Japanese history in general, let me once again recommend Isaac Meyer's History of Japan podcast. He also discusses in detail the Nanking Massacre, including the whole matter of the controversy that carries into our day. I'm not going to wade into that in these episodes. They were a rather hard-to-control lot, these Japanese generals. June 4, 1928, Zhang Zuolin, the warlord of Manchuria, found out the hard way what happens when you didn't see eye-to-eye with the Japanese military. His train got blown up with him inside. November 1930, Prime Minister Hamaguchi Osachi was shot and died from his wounds the following year, gunned down by some ultra-nationalist crazy. This was just a high-profile example, but Japan's political situation was in a high degree of distress. 1920s, 1930s. The time of the shoguns may have ended, but this military spirit was alive and well. And the military tail was now clearly wagging the political dog. The militarists were determined to have their way in Manchuria, by hook or by crook. So that's where the Mukden incident plays into this. Jioipa, 9-18-1931, mentioned so many times before in past episodes. And pretty much from that point on, there was no stopping Japan and China. They made Manchuria their own, called it Manchukuo, and installed the Qing Dynasty last emperor, Puyi, as their imperial puppet, immortalized by John Lone's award-winning performance in Bernardo Bertolucci's 1987 Oscar-winning film. The May 15th incident, 1932, Prime Minister Inukai Tsuyoshi was done in, along with others in the government. Young, radical, right-wing naval officers carried out this assault on the already faltering Japanese civilian government. You know, not everyone in the Japanese government at that time was hot and heavy to go invade China. There were those who didn't think it was such a good idea. But you know how some militarists are. What's the use of these weapons and modern technology if we don't use them? Sound familiar? The January 28th incident. 
This was also in 1932. The height of the Depression. Five Japanese Buddhist monks got roughed up quite badly in Shanghai. One died, two were hospitalized. This kind of violence was no surprise, given the omnipresence of anti-Japanese sentiment. But if anyone thought they were going to stand up to Japan's might, they had to be taught a lesson. And it was decided to use this incident in Shanghai with this mob takedown of these Japanese monks as a reason to ratchet up the pressure on China. China was willing to give in to the main demands made by Japan in response to this incident. Plus, the corporate barons of Shanghai, too. They didn't want any trouble caused by war. At all costs, commerce could not be disrupted. So they paid off the Chinese military to back down and turn the other cheek. But Japan was looking for war, not peace. And what followed was the first ever terror bombing on civilians in wartime. Japanese aircraft carriers off the Bund let fly a barrage of death. There was also shooting and killing between Japan and NRA ground troops. 10,000 people were killed. This was a new thing for city dwellers. Mankind had come a long way since bronze spears and shields. Now mortar shells and bombs rained down on the streets of Shanghai. This was new. No one had ever done that before. Of course, now it's commonplace, and we hear about it happening somewhere in the world almost every night on the news. Anyway, the world condemnation of Japan for this act of aggression was too loud for their liking, so they withdrew from the League of Nations. Then, in an all-too-familiar scene in our day, what followed in Japan was a muting of the press, jailing of dissidents, union leaders, students, and anyone who had an opinion that differed from the military. So those who questioned the wisdom of all these bellicose actions saw themselves challenged by the government authorities, and their patriotism was openly questioned, and you could almost hear the nationalism bubbling away beneath it all. By 1936, Japan felt they were ready to take their plans one step further. Remember, they already had a hammerlock on Manchuria. Now the target was to expand their presence and influence in North China immediately south of Manchukuo, mostly Hebei, Shanxi, and Shandong. Very meticulous plans were made as far as how to annex all this territory, how they would take it over, and most importantly, how they would gain control of the important industries and raw materials. That's where the Marco Polo Bridge incident comes in. 7737. Yeah, I know, Ringo's birthday. Well, three years later, anyway. If you recall, part of the deal of the Boxer Protocol was that the foreign powers, Japan included, got to station troops around the capital to prevent another thing like that happening again. That was an affront to China's sovereignty, not to mention their national dignity. But back then, who cared? Some Japanese soldier went missing that night. This small contingent of Japanese troops went out looking for their guy, if he ever went missing at all. And over where the Fifth Ring Road passes through East Beijing today, by the Marco Polo Bridge, troops started firing on each other. Chinese didn't do as expected when the Japanese started barking orders to back down. Meanwhile, the top military brass in Japan watching this matter closely, discussed what an appropriate response would be to this belligerent confrontation. If they were ever going to pull the trigger on their big plans for China, they had to act soon. Anti-Japanese sentiment was continuing to rise, and the longer they waited, 
the better armed and trained the Chinese NRA became. So this little incident suddenly escalated to become a whole reason to go to war. This has been compared to LBJ's Gulf of Tonkin resolution in 1964. Three Japanese divisions were ordered to march south into the area from Manchuria to deal with the situation. And on July 12th, they started bombing Tianjin. As things deteriorated, Chiang Kai-shek had to take stock of his situation. Japan and China weren't officially at war yet, but it sure looked like he was heading in that direction. Jiang knew losing Beijing and the rest of North China was only a national humiliation. It wasn't a knockout punch. Jiang's power base, since the very beginning, was south of the Yangtze River. Always was, till the bitter end. In 1937, you couldn't say Chiang Kai-shek was fully in charge in the north of China. The leftover warlords who came over to his side after the northern expedition were still the main military powers in the north. Their loyalty to Chiang and their own self-interest went hand in hand and went up and down like a stock market. When Chiang fulminated over his options at historic Lushan in Jiangxi province, he decided the north had to be sacrificed. When he was given a snotty, belligerent ultimatum from the Japanese commander on July 22nd, demanding the Chinese troops withdraw, Jiang told him to stuff it, and he ordered an attack instead. I mean, what was he going to do? Beijing? I would call it Beiping back then. Was was a pretty symbolic place in China, you know, going back to the most ancient times. Its present form had only been around since the Mongols, but the history of that place went back to the Zhou dynasty, and for centuries it had been the nation's capital. Of course, Jiang wasn't going to just walk away. His token defense of Beijing was enough for the Japanese ref to call a foul, and that was as good a reason as any to take over North China. So now, in early August 1937, just a month after the Marco Polo Bridge incident, Japan was fully locked and loaded, and at the greatest extent of their military might and preparedness for the whole war. After they brought 160,000 troops down into Hebei, Beijing was given up for lost. Jiang was telling his people, the inevitable is about to be unleashed. Prepare for war. Probably the long-drawn-out kind. The Nationalist government had gone all out to whip the populace up into a frenzy of anti-Japanese sentiment. All the boycotts, propaganda posters, and signs everywhere. The Japanese were always made to feel quite unwelcome. The tradition of Chinese politeness didn't apply to them. By 1937, Japan had headbutted China so many times going back to the Treaty of Shimonoseki. China had had enough. And the worst part for China hadn't even started yet. The ghouls in Japan's propaganda department did plenty to counter the claims that they were the aggressor. Their version of events painted them as the victims and the Chinese as the aggressors. I mean, look at all Japan had done for China. And in return, just this daily vitriol. So that was the next brick in the wall, the fall of North China. Now, when I say North China, again, that means the cities of the North. Beijing fell on July 28th, and Tianjin on the 30th. Jiang's strategy was to shore up his defenses down in the south. He had reluctantly given up on the north. Once he had everything in position south of the Yangtze, that was when he was going to take the fight to Japan, force them into a two-front war. 
In the meantime, Chiang Kai-shek sent out an SOS to all the great powers, but everyone else had their own problems. In the late 1930s, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Franco. It wasn't a good time for China to be asking for help from far away. Too many higher-priority distractions in the West. Jiang was going to have to face this military beast on his own. And Pearl Harbor was still a good four years away. I know the Tanaka Memorial of June 25, 1927 was exposed as a fraud. But Japan did stick to parts one and two of the plan. This plan of world domination said, take Manchuria first, then North China, then the rest of Asia. You know, the Asian co-prosperity sphere with Japan at the top of the food chain, well, that wouldn't get announced till 1940, but the military was already working to achieve that goal. With North China subdued, the Japanese military strategy called for a period of consolidation before moving on to the next phase. This was a massive territory, and it was going to take some time to get everything in place. Chiang Kai-shek knew this, and so his plan was to rush Japan into this next phase before they were ready. Chiang had reserved all his best, most highly trained troops for this part of the war. He could have used them to help defend the North, but decided, why waste them? He took the cream of his troops and positioned them all around the suburbs of Shanghai and had them dig in and prepare for action. The Battle of Shanghai was up next. This event and the Nanking Massacre go hand in hand. Jiang had about 700,000 troops in the vicinity. But even with all these men and the new military equipment, he was still massively outgunned. The Japanese were all parked off the coast, armed to the teeth, ready to pull the trigger at the slightest provocation. While this calm before the storm was going on, Japan was furiously ferrying men and equipment to the shores of Shanghai. Up until this moment, early August 1937, you'd hardly know this place was about to become a war zone. Everyone who had been making money in Shanghai, going back to the Treaty Port era, was hoping against hope this party would never end. But, and it did, practically at the last moment, everyone who had something to lose besides their lives pulled up stakes and left Shanghai. August 14, 1937, Black Saturday. This was intended to be one of the Chinese Air Force's finest hours. Instead, it became known as the Izumo Incident. The Chinese Air Force was still a rather new and untested new wing of the military. From day one, it had been part of Madame Jiang's portfolio of duties. In Jiang's opening gambit to take the fight to Japan, he called for the bombing of the Japanese naval vessel Izumo. What followed was a complete failure militarily as well as politically. Though the Izumo did get damaged, it wasn't enough to sink the vessel. The majority of the bombs inadvertently fell on crowded pedestrian areas of Shanghai. 2,000 innocents killed. The wrong targets got bombed. The next day on August 15th, a month and a week after the Marco Polo Bridge incident, the first air raids began over the nationalist Chinese capital in Nanjing, the first of many to follow until the city fell in December. All this time, up through the end of August, the Japanese had been bringing in troops and ammo. 
After the Izumo incident, Shanghai became a battleground. Not only was there terrible bombing, there was shooting right on the streets of the city. The fighting went from street to street. It was terribly brutal. Not like today's killing, so often done from great distances. What student of Chinese history can ever forget the iconic black and white photo of this time? The crying baby sitting on the railroad tracks, all on its own amidst a bombed-out street. That was taken August 28, 1937. I remember that image going back to the time I was a kid. That was Shanghai in a microcosm. Eighty years ago, people walking along Nanjing Road, Huaihai Lu, and all the other great streets of Shanghai were facing Armageddon. Aerial bombardment, machine guns going off in the streets, bodies and body parts everywhere, people running and screaming for their lives, fires burning all around. By September 1937, word began to get out into the world press about what was happening in Shanghai. That was a big brand-name city, and everyone knew of that place. And with so many foreign interests affected by the war, you can bet the Western powers stood up and took notice. But nobody was running to Chiang Kai-shek's aid yet. All throughout September-October 1937, Shanghai was just bombed mercilessly. And not just Shanghai, the whole Yangtze River Delta region. Around October 24th, though, the battle started to wind down. The tide had turned against the NRA, and Japan was proving to be too formidable a foe. Then on November 5th, 1937, 120,000 more Japanese troops landed about a half hour east from where the north end of the Hangzhou Bay Bridge is today, longest in the world. And that Japanese 10th Army helped to finish off the remaining resistance in Shanghai. So with Shanghai temporarily out of business, the nationalist government lost most of its income stream. The foreigners had all left to safer locations. Many left and never came back. I mentioned Carl Crow in CHP episode 79. He was one of those Westerners who had to bail in a hurry when this bombing commenced in August. The National Revolutionary Army often gets short shrift in modern Chinese history. Well, history is always written by the victors. They put up a good fight against a much better trained and equipped Japanese Imperial Army. They hung in there for three months. They held Japan back as long as they could. 187,000 Chinese soldiers gave their lives for their country in the Battle of Shanghai. When his generals, Bai Chongxi and Li Zongren, told Jiang all was lost and they had to retreat... The Generalissimo demanded they fight on. If one of Chiang Kai-shek's objectives was to nudge the Western powers into paying attention, oh, he had their interests now. As I said, Pearl Harbor was still four years out, but at this point, these neutral powers had to start updating their battle plans. Japan's actions in China were now raising the geopolitical and economic stakes for everyone. On November 8th, Jiang had finally given the belated order to withdraw from Shanghai. Soldiers started making a chaotic mass exodus from the Yangtze Delta. Earlier in October, seeing how things were going in Shanghai, Jiang had given the orders to start packing up the civilian government in Nanjing and begin moving it upriver to Chongqing. The military command was only moved as far west as Wuhan for the time being. 
the Yangtze River throughout Chinese history was always so vital and important. This was always China's river. It began and ended in China. Towards the end of November and into the early days of December, it was like the 405 freeway at rush hour. Everyone who feared what was coming next bought passage on any number of boats, big and small, and headed west, upriver to safer lands in Anhui, Hubei, and Sichuan. For most Chinese nationals, who had the means at least, this river was their only way out. While the Battle of Shanghai was in the mopping up stage, Nanjing was in total chaos. Not only the soldiers in Laobaixing fled the onslaught, all of China's cultural treasures, too, as much as possible, was hastily packed up in crates and taken far away to be buried away in a safe place until a later time. Despite all those efforts, though, countless priceless treasures from China's magnificent past cultural heritage ended up in Japan. Most East Coast refugees, rich and poor, fled all the way to Chongqing, the wartime capital. Before this upheaval started, the whole population of Chongqing wasn't more than half a million people. Starting in 1938, the Chongqing had to make room for a spare 9.2 million extra people. That's like the population of New York City. This other, lesser-known long march from the Jiangzhou region in the east to Chongqing was another, no less dramatic, historic event than the you know, better-known Long March of 1934-1935 that made it into the history books. People were on the move, it's said, from 1937 until the Japanese surrender in 1945. Something like 100 million Chinese had to flee their homes to avoid getting caught up in any confrontations with the Japanese army. Now, here's the thing about Nanjing. Once the Japanese took control of Shanghai, they could have just stopped there. Other than its symbolic value... Nanjing wasn't a game-changer if they took it. As I said, it had taken Japan three months to subdue Shanghai, something their military leaders figure should have taken only weeks, if not days. But it had taken from August 14th to November 5th to drive out the nationalists. For the first time since the Mukden incident, 9-18-31, Japan was wondering if they might have underestimated how easy this was all going to be. They had lost 40,000 men trying to take Shanghai. So everyone at the top, no doubt, was in a foul mood. Maybe the Japanese military leaders looked at Nanjing as a lesson that would teach the local inhabitants that resistance was futile. A lot of troops that survived the Battle of Shanghai retreated to Nanjing to put up a last-ditch defense of the capital. None of the Western powers, except Stalin had found it in the goodness of their hearts in 1937 to send any aid to China. Stalin finally pulled through with 2,967 aircraft, both fighters and bombers, many of which were in the air by December. 290 cannon, 82 tanks, and 400 cars, you know, arms, ammo, all worth a $250 million in 1937 money. China had to sign a chit for that. That much hardware was not given freely. The way Uncle Joe saw it, tying down Japan and China distracted them from any actions they could carry out against Russia near Manchuria. A lot of civilians who survived the worst traumas of the Battle of Shanghai 
thought they'd find safety in Nanjing. So that's where they headed. That reminds me of the story of Mr. Yamaguchi Tsutomu, who fled Hiroshima on August 6th as soon as the bomb was dropped and sought out safety in the south in Nagasaki, arriving just in time for the second atomic bombing. Nanjing didn't experience an atomic bomb, but radiation is still felt by many survivors into our day. Not only were people fleeing Shanghai for Nanjing, people from the countryside, too. They thought they'd be safer inside the city walls than out in the open in their villages. So Nanjing emptied out plenty, but a lot of people also poured in as well. Shanghai to Nanjing today, 90 minutes away by high-speed rail. Maybe three and a half hours away by car. In other words, not too far away. Even by 1937 distances. 180 miles. As Japan began shelling the Nanjing city walls, Chiang Kai-shek was still hoping for a miracle. Stalin had pulled through with the arms and equipment, but was still not willing to commit ground troops. On December 7, 1937, with the Japanese army marching towards the nation's capital, Chiang Kai-shek and Song Mei-ling, Madame Chiang, left Nanjing, going first to Nanchang and then to Lushan in Jiangxi. Jiang was doing what he could to organize the defense of Nanjing and to deal with the consequences, kicking that hornet's nest when he bombed the Izumo back in August. From Lushan, Jiang next flew to Wuhan, where the new military command was being set up. The man Jiang put in charge of the defense of Nanjing was an old Hunan warlord who had an on-again, off-again relationship with the Generalissimo, named Tang Shengzhi. Defending Nanjing was a thankless task if there ever was one. The NRA's best troops had all been decimated fighting the Battle of Shanghai. The army was in disarray, and Tang desperately tried to rally the remaining troops. That the Japanese were going to take Nanjing was already a given. Everyone knew that. But General Tang Shengzhi still had to put up the right amount of token resistance. This was the capital of China, the site of Sun Yat-sen's mausoleum. Nanjing was one of China's ancient historic cities, going back to Sun Quan and the, and the Three Kingdoms period. They couldn't just abandon it and hand it over free of charge to the invading Japanese. Not this city. What a terrible time for China. We look at Syria today and what they've been going through different situation in China in December 1937, but the suffering was no less horrible. So into the first week of December 1937, there was this feeling of impending doom in Nanjing. Shanghai was already gone. People who didn't leave or who sought refuge there knew Nanjing was next. I suppose if everyone had known in advance the extent of what was about to happen... I'm sure the place would have emptied out completely. Historic hindsight always has 20-20 vision. Alas, hundreds of thousands of people remained in Nanjing, hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. Japanese propaganda leaflets were spread throughout Nanjing, assuring everyone they had nothing to fear. The Japanese meant good. The leaflets said, basically, lay down your arms and no one will get hurt. Resist? and the consequences will be terrible. As the people tried to figure out what this meant, Tang Shengzhi's soldiers got the city prepared for battle. Right in the center of Nanjing, there were 
sandbags, barbed wire, and you know, all the trappings of urban warfare. Everyone knew all too well what had happened already in Shanghai. There wasn't any doubt that Nanjing would get flattened, too. The Japanese Imperial Army converged on Nanjing in three groups. The man in charge of the operation was Matsui Iwane. He was commander-in-chief for the Shanghai-Nanjing region of the Imperial Japanese Army. Another division was headed by Nakajima Kesago. You could pin a lot of the worst atrocities of the rape of Nanjing on this guy. There were several people who were more guilty than others. Nakajima Kesago was one of the worst. A third division was led by Lieutenant General Yanagawa Heisuke. Very hard to dig up stuff on him. He was a career military officer who had been brought out of retirement to be part of the effort. Those were the big three. Matsui Iwane was the one in charge. A lot has been made about Matsui's orders to his officers to take Nanjing and to be careful not to cause an incident. In other words, don't go crazy on the people and carry out the kind of bloody slaughter they were capable of doing and had been doing en route to Nanjing from Shanghai. Locals who got caught up in that march got a small amuse-bouche of what was waiting for those who were hunkered down in Nanjing. Historic Suzhou also got a nice taste of battle. November 19th, that city of 350,000 practically emptied out when the Japanese army came to town. I read there were barely 500 people left in the whole city. Suzhou, so renowned in China for the beauty of its gardens and canals, just got completely trashed. As fate would have it, General Matsui had a little tuberculosis thing going on. He suffered from that, and just prior to the taking of Nanjing, his TB flared up and he had to lay low and recuperate for a bit. But he did say to his officers, and I'm quoting from Iris Zhang's book, quote, the entry of the imperial army into a foreign capital is a great event in our history, attracting the attention of the world. Therefore, let no unit enter the city in a disorderly fashion. Let them know beforehand the matters to be remembered and the position of the foreign rights and interests in the walled city. Let them be absolutely free from plunder. Dispose sentries as needed. Plundering and causing fires, even carelessly, shall be punished severely. Together with the troops, let many military police and auxiliary military police enter the walled city and thereby prevent unlawful conduct. End quote. The man who took over for General Matsui during his convalescence was another of the biggest rogues of the rape of Nanking. This was Emperor Hirohito's uncle by marriage, Prince Asaka Yasuhiko. Emperor Hirohito was only 36 years old in 1937. Prince Asaka was 50. Prince Asaka was, I'm not going to say the black sheep of the family, but he was a bit of a hothead and a nationalist troublemaker. He didn't like his, uh, let's say, tebasaki, unless it was the right wing. Let's put it that way. So with Matsui convalescing, Prince Asaka took control. And perhaps in that act, the Nanjing Massacre happened. We'll never know if... Matsui's health, you know, had things been different, you know, if it could have prevented what followed. In any case, the Japanese military was immediately hit with a tremendous problem that for some reason they hadn't anticipated. There were something like 
300,000 NRA troops inside the city awaiting the arrival of the Japanese. It had been communicated to the Japanese that they weren't looking for a fight and were hoping to spare the city more of what Shanghai had suffered. General Tang Shengzhi, he was going to follow his orders and put up the best possible defense, even if it was symbolic. But most soldiers, they were resigned to surrender and await their fate. General Tang, even as late as December 10th, was still desperately trying to work out a truce and spare Nanjing. When Tang Shengzhi appealed to Jiang Kai-shek to be allowed to cut and run, Jiang angrily demanded he stay and fight. So with no white flag forthcoming, the Japanese moved ahead and bombed Nanjing something fierce. The city was now on fire. It was starting. The next day, December 11th, Jiang finally gave the orders for a belated retreat. I say belated because by this time there was already very intense fighting. There was complete chaos on the Chinese side. Troops were either pinned down fighting for their lives or running for their lives. Either way, the situation was hardly orderly or conducive to giving out and receiving military commands. The majority of those brave souls got stuck in Nanjing and had to prepare for the worst. They ditched their uniforms, rifles, grenades, and tried to blend in. Most of them would be killed over the next several weeks. The Chinese army fought more than just a symbolic fight, but it was all for nothing. They were getting destroyed. Trying to organize an orderly retreat was out of the question. In the end, it all came down to every man for himself. Tang Shengzhi was in an impossible position. The Nationalist Command had arranged for a boat to evacuate him from the city. He was reluctant to cut and run in the thick of battle, but he was told this was his only way out, and he'd be needed later after the Nationalists had a chance to regroup and organize a resistance. If you look at Nanjing on a map, you can see on three sides the city's surrounded by the Yangtze River. So trying to break out of that kind of terrain wasn't easy. Nonetheless, the troops left to their own devices had to find a way to break through the Japanese lines and make their way to regroup at a pre-assigned meeting place in southern Anhui. On December 12th, the United States got to feel the rage of the Japanese military. The military later said they didn't see the red, white, and blue flags on the neutral USS Panay, an American vessel docked on the Yangtze at Nanjing. But they blew it up anyway and sunk the USS Panay. This boat had been used recently to ferry Americans out of Nanjing for the weeks leading up to the incident. The Americans maintained the Japanese knew this vessel was neutral and the flags were plainly visible that December 12th morning. Japanese said otherwise, and that boat ended up at the bottom of the Yangtze. Was this intentional? Probably was. Although Pearl Harbor was still four years away, the Japanese knew whose side the Yanks would be on sooner or later. Not theirs. So this was sort of like that scene in The Godfather when, uh, when the paparazzi tried to take photos at Connie's wedding. What Japan did was like when Sonny took the photographer's camera and smashed it to the ground. When the Americans protested to Japan about the sinking of the Pane, five killed, 43 injured. The Japanese peeled off 2.2 million bucks, the indemnity negotiated by the U.S., and threw it at Uncle Sam. The message being, 
We own the Yangtze now. Watch yourself. So, December 12th, 1937. We are now right on the eve of the commencement of what history has labeled the Nanking Massacre, the Rape of Nanking, the Nanjing Da Tusha. I'm going to cut and run right here. Don't worry about having to wait another 40 days to hear part two. It's already done and going up at the same time as this one. Okay, next episode we'll pick up on that dreadful day of December 12th, 1937. More happened on that day than just the sinking of the USS Panay. That's all waiting for you in part two. Then we'll look at the six weeks of horror experienced by all the Chinese citizens who chose to make Nanjing their safe haven after the fall of Shanghai. We'll also introduce the good German, Herr John Rabe, as well as the international safety zone that he and his saintly colleagues were able to organize. And then we'll look at the aftermath of the rape of Nanking when it was all over. So until that time, meine Freunde, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the capital of SoCal, city of Los Angeles, beseeching you once again, don't give up the ship. Come back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.